in this series. That's what we're doing. We're looking at the spiritual principle uh, behind each of the Ten Commandments. And uh, hopefully through this series, you'll see how each of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. Uh, God did not give us a list of to-dos and don'ts uh, to repel us from him. He gave us the commandments uh, to draw us closer to him. That's what they're all about. There, there is a relational principle behind each of the commandments. So that's what we want to look for in this series. And remember, while we're not saved because we obey the Ten Commandments, we can't earn our salvation, right? Jesus has already taken care of that for us. But if we have received Jesus as our Savior, and we've received the Holy Spirit, the Ten Commandments ought not to be rules or laws. They ought to be a way of life, a way of living. And Jesus never abolished the commandments, nor did he ever make them obsolete. In fact, he does the, just the opposite in the Gospels. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come or I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Anyone born again and under grace, we can live out the righteousness of the commandment as the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. You know, observing the commandments ought to be the natural outcome of anyone who is born again who has received the Holy Spirit. Look what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, that the righteousness or the righteous requirement of the law, remember the Ten Commandments are part of the law, might be fulfilled where? In us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If we walk according to the Spirit, then those righteous requirements ought to be fulfilled in us and through us. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives us life, gives us spiritual life. Therefore, we can live out the righteousness of that command under grace. And that's what this series is all about. It's about identifying the spiritual principle revealed in each commandment and understanding how that enhances our relationship with God and with others. So last week's message was kind of an introduction to the series. This is kind of a brief review of what we, what we did last week. Today, we're going to focus on the very first commandment, the very first spiritual principle that's revealed in this commandment, and it's in Exodus chapter 20. You can also find uh, the Ten Commandments written in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law, and it doesn't mean that there was a different law. It just means the reading of the law a second time, and that was before the children of Israel entered into the promised land. But anyways, uh, the original uh, revealing or giving of the Ten Commandments is written here in Exodus chapter 20, and that's where we'll focus throughout our series. But anyways, verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, some people read that verse and conclude this. Well, God permits me to have other gods as long as those gods aren't in front of the God. That's not the way. That's not, it's, it's not a conjunctive statement. It's a prepositional statement. So listen to what God says throughout the Word of God. And here's just one example. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord. There is no other God. 
There is no God besides me. And when we read that word, that no other gods before me, we should also know that how that word is translated used throughout the Old Testament, and often it's besides. That you shall have no other gods besides, before, uh, before my face. I am the Lord your God is what God is declaring throughout the Scripture. And God makes himself clear throughout the entirety of Scripture that he is the only God. So if we read the first commandment as God allowing us to have other gods, as long as they aren't in front of him, we really create a dilemma in scripture that doesn't exist. This is why so many Christians fall into error when it comes to the the scriptures. They'll take a scripture, they'll read it, and they won't understand that scripture in light of the rest of scripture. You'll hear me constantly talk about this, especially if you come on Wednesday nights constantly and consistently, that we should read the Word of God in its context, understand it cohesively with the rest of Scripture. Scripture should interpret Scripture. And when you don't have a place where Scripture can interpret Scripture, you just have to trust the Lord in those areas, okay? So listen, when the, the Bible is not a code book. The Bible is not a, a book of mysteries where you, you have to figure all these things out. There are certain things God reveals in His Word, and there are certain things that He doesn't reveal in His Word. So I'm just saying this, we, we will we'll be good managers of God's word if we'll read it cohesively with the rest of scripture, allowing scripture to interpret scripture. If we say that we're allowed to have other gods, as long as they're not before the one true God, we're going to cause a, a dilemma in scripture that doesn't exist. We should understand it with cohesively through the rest of scripture, there is no other God but the God. No other gods besides him. So think about this, whenever, just as a rule of thumb, when it comes to the Scripture, why the Holy Spirit inspires all the writers of Scripture. God is the author of Scripture. The Holy Spirit inspires writers. Why would Almighty God in all of his knowing, all of his power, inspire one writer of Scripture to say one thing, only to have another writer of Scripture then to double back on what God said and cause confusion? God is not the author of confusion. So, There's no contradiction in the word. We only create those contradictions because we don't understand. Allow scripture to interpret scripture. Amen? All right. If you recall, prior to to giving the Ten Commandments, uh, Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians for several hundred years. And in Egypt, like most cultures during that time, they were polytheistic people. They worshiped many gods. In fact, if we think back to when God called Abraham... Abraham, uh, his family served other gods, many gods. Uh, They worshiped the gods of Mesopotamia. We'll find that in Joshua. Joshua speaks about this. And this is exactly why Abraham couldn't serve God in his father's house and in his father's country because they worshiped other gods. So he had to bring Abraham out of that so he could worship the one true God. So Egypt also, when you look at it, while it's a real country, we understand that exists, and historically, uh, the record with with the uh, Israelites, but Egypt also represents a type, a type of the world. And so if we're looking at it through kind of a spiritual perspective, Egypt, while being real and, and enslaved the Israelites, also is a type of the world. It represents everyone who is held in bondage to their sin, and we serve other gods. Now, all of us have been enslaved in Egypt, and all of us have served other gods. You say, well, I don't really believe that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't worship Buddha or some statue or whatever. No, listen, the God of me, myself, and I is the most prevalent God in America. 
The God of me, myself, and I is the most served and worshiped God in this nation. All of us have served our own selfish desires at one place or time. In our sinfulness and from our desires, we create gods of ourselves and we serve them. See, God is reminding Israel that he is the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt and redeemed them from their slavery. And likewise, in Christ, we are redeemed from this world, from our sin, freed from the dominion of sin for this purpose, for relationship with God. And that's exactly the point behind redemption in the Old Testament and redemption in the New Testament. God redeems us for the purpose of relationship. God created us for the purpose of relationship. God wants a relationship with you and I. God could not establish a relationship with Israel while they were in bondage in Egypt. And likewise, God cannot establish a relationship with you and I if we are in bondage to sin. And God calls us out of our sin and redeems us for that purpose, for the purpose of relationship. Now, what God is doing throughout this, this commandment is this. He's communicating something very important. The spiritual principle is really this. It's first. God is priority. So when you see that, that God says there are no other gods except for him, he's showing us a priority. The spiritual principle is priority, to put God first. And when you hear that, you may think, well, that sounds like God is, he's like a glory hog. And, and that's not, in, in our fallen thinking, in this fallen world, we may think that or feel that, but that's not what God is all about. God is not a glory hog. He doesn't demand our attention because he has some fragile ego. That's not the intention behind the commandment. So our motivation for being first isn't the same motivation that God has for being first. You know, again, we tend to look at this through human eyes. You know, when, when we have children and, and they're young, it, it's all about me, myself, and I, right? And sometimes, well, sometimes those children become adults and they never grow out of it, right? But at the, the core of, of humanity, that's what we think. That's how we feel, when we hear someone says, put me first, we think of self, selfishness, but that's not the same motivation that God has for being first. God in his infinite wisdom and understands the corruption of mankind and the fallenness of the human soul. So God doesn't have this ego that causes him to be first. There's a reason, God want, there's a reason why God wants to be first. And God knows this. He knows that if he isn't first, man will make something either in himself, of himself, or whatever he desires or wants. Sometimes we make gods of other people, and we worship them, and we put them first because they are the most important thing or the most important person. So God doesn't want to be first for our detriment. God wants to be first in our lives for our advantage. And all throughout Scripture, we'll see the principle of the first communicated by God. Uh, give you an example. When... when, when Israel came out of bondage to Egypt, and God delivered them through the Red Sea and all these miracles. Uh, they were in the desert for 40 years, and then they were to enter the promised land. And when they were entering the promised land, God sent them to the first city, which was Jericho. We understand the story of the walls and all that. But when, when God gave them the victory over Jericho, God held them to this, accountable to this, uh, this position. This is what he required of them. And this is right before uh, God gives them the victory. This is what God asked of Joshua. Remember, Joshua at this time is leading Israel into battle. This is Joshua chapter 6, verse 19. But of all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron 
are consecrated to the Lord. They belong to God. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Now, God created all things. God has no desire for our stuff. Again, I'll remind you of this. Gold in heaven are, is pavement. Something we just walk on. Right? God doesn't need money. He doesn't need our money. God created all things. So why would Almighty God, who created all things, want the treasure of Jericho? God doesn't need the money, so there, there has to be a principle. There has to be a reason why he's communicating this. And God says the plunder of that first city belongs to him for a reason. And the reason is that God wants Israel to trust him. Because it makes all the sense of the world to take that money, to take that treasure. They can use that to establish their nation, their kingdom. Jericho is a major city. It has lots of value, lots of, lots of treasure. It would make sense that that would help them. God says, I want that one first. Give me the first city, the plunder for the first. You can have all the other cities, all the other plunder. I just want that one first. So God wants to understand them to understand he's also their provider. He loves them. He will provide for them. And in the law of Moses, God tells Israel this. We'll find this, this principle communicated throughout the word of God. Give you another example. When it comes to in Israel being at that time, being a society that's built on agriculture and livestock, God requires Israel to do this. Among their herds and among their crops, God asked for the firstborn and he asked for the first fruits. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, wait until you have 10 sheep and then bring me one. No, nope. God says, the first one born, bring it to me. It's the first. Uh, of the crops, bring me the first fruits. If we look back at the story of Cain and Abel, we'll see the first also demonstrated in the very beginning. Uh, Cain was a farmer, but he did not bring the first fruits to the Lord. Cain brought some of his harvest in the course of time. Abel was a herdsman. He brought the firstborn of the Lord as an offering. Abel didn't wait for the second calf to be born. He brought the first one. So the first is a priority. Abel didn't make his offering contingent upon the birth of a second animal. So Cain and Abel's story, it happens, listen to this, 2,500 years before the law. So for 2,500 years, and we'll see this principle not only in that time, but continued on and practiced till the law, people practice worship by putting God first. It's not something that's created in the law, made up by the law, or by the church. It's a principle we'll find throughout the Word of God. God says, put me first. It's a principle that was established under the law, it's reaffirmed under the law, and it's also continued under grace. Putting God first isn't law, church. It should be life. It should be life-giving when you put God first. If you feel like putting God first robs or steals from you, there might be a deeper issue you have to deal with because the earth is the Lord's and everything within it. If you're a Christian, you are born again. The Bible is very clear. You have been redeemed. You have been purchased. You have been bought. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus. So it really comes down to a matter of the flesh. You either belong to you or you belong to God. Now, I can tell you this. If you belong to you, your destiny is in your hands. I would rather choose that my life be in the hands of God. God himself gives Jesus. Think about this. He gives Jesus as the firstborn over all creation. He is the first. He is God's one and only son. God himself practices the first. I want you to think about this. When it comes to sin, we're all sinners. We need, we need to be redeemed. 
But Jesus doesn't wait for people to turn to him, or God doesn't wait for people to turn to him. What does he do? He sends a Savior first. Listen, Christ died while we were all sinners. It wasn't that someone had become saved or born again or anything like that or paid for their sins, so to speak. Jesus gave his life willingly, sacrificially first before there was ever a convert. So God himself practices the first. He, see, the, the, pra- the practice of the first is all about love, and that is the motivation why God gives. God loves us so much that he is motivated to put himself first in a way that he is giving. So the goal of the Ten Commandments is not to weigh us down with rules and regulations. In Christ, under grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, observing the spiritual principle of each commandment, it will enhance our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Listen to what Jesus asked, was asked and how he answered this question in Matthew 22. It says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that's the first and great commandment, but the second is like it, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. See, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, Jesus says. The entirety of God's word summarized into this one statement. We shall love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and likewise our neighbor as ourselves. That's what the commandments are all about. That's the spiritual principle behind each of the commandments. Four of the commandments deal with our relationship with God. Six deal with our relationship with others. And listen, if you want to put it into light of what Jesus just said, the four that deal with God are just, or, or the six that deal with our relationship with man are just as important as the four that deal with God. You can't say, well, I'll deal with God and love him, but people forget about them. I don't like people. That's not going to work. That doesn't work in Scripture. That might work up here, but that doesn't work in God's plan. See, Jesus says the entirety of God's work can be summarized in that statement. God is first, and if God is first, we can love our neighbor as ourselves. God isn't trying to use the commandments to keep us from him. God gives us the commandments so that we will draw closer to him. So here's a great story that illustrates, again, the principle of the first. I don't know if you've ever looked at this story, but it's a wonderful story in the Old Testament. It's about Elijah and the widow from Zarephath. This is a great story. And God calls Elijah as a prophet. He's calling judgment to Israel. And what he's saying is, because of their rebelliousness, because of their sin, he's saying that there will be no rain until he commands the prophet to pray and allow it to rain once again. And we know that time period seems to be three and a half years. So God calls Elijah to announce this, this judgment on Israel. God calls him to a place to provide for him, and he calls him to a little brook. And there at this brook, just off the Jordan River, God begins to provide for him by bringing uh, Elijah food twice a day. Ravens, I mean, what's the, uh, what's the food delivery service called? That's the one, DoorDash. God had DoorDash down before anyone else, okay? Ravens bring Elijah food twice a day, meat and bread, now, I don't know about you, I'm a little picky. I don't know if I want to eat meat or bread brought by a, a, a bird, you know? But I guess when you're hungry, you'll eat just about anything, right? Okay, beggars can't be choosers, I guess. But, so God calls Elijah to pronounce this judgment on Israel, 
and then sends him to a place where he can care for him, feeds him twice a day. Now, how long he's there and how long he's fed, we don't know. But suddenly, the birds stop bringing his food, the water dries up, and this is what, what God says to Elijah. And this is 1 Kings chapter 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded or prepared a widow to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar, and see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a cake from it first. And bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Now, when we hear that story on the surface, it seems a bit lopsided. Elijah has been provided a meal twice a day. That chubby little preacher was just fine while everybody else was starving. God is delivering food to him. Again, with the famine last three and a half years, we don't know how long he was there at the brook, how long God sustained him, how God, how, we don't know any of that. But it, it obviously was a long period of time. Because when he comes to the, the widow at Zarephath, she is down to her last meal. And I find it interesting that this woman is struggling. Elijah hasn't been struggling. I mean, he has food delivery service brought to him. But it just runs out, so he's... But again, he wasn't complaining. God said to him, hey, listen, I've prepared a widow. I've commanded a widow for you. She will sustain you. She will provide for you. Elijah, when we first read it, it seems lopsided because here Elijah has been just fine, but this widow is obviously struggling. Her, her and her son, they're down to their last meal. And on the surface, it seems like God and Elijah may seem a little insensitive. But listen to what Elijah says. Do not fear Go and do as you have said, but make me a cake from it first. God sent Elijah to the widow so the widow would provide for him. Now we think when we read the story and we hear it, that it's all about providing for him. But really in essence what we find, God sent him there to provide for her. See, Elijah knows God. God has provided for him. God has taken care of him. God, Elijah isn't insensitive. He is full of faith. He goes, if God can feed me, from ravens, meat and bread twice a day, then he could take care of this widow. I'm just going to do what he asked me to do, and I'm just going to present it to this woman. It's up to her. It's her choice. But Elijah knows God. He knows how God's provided for him. And Elijah knew if God had sent him there to this widow to provide for him, that God would also provide for her as well. And it's not selfishness by putting himself in that position of first. So God isn't heartless in this situation, yet that's the way many of us might feel when we read about this story. And that's because we're looking at it completely differently. 
Elijah wasn't starving. Again, he was fed twice a day. But this woman, she needs a miracle. The widow obeys the word of the Lord and afterwards pronounces this blessing upon her, that the bin of flour shall not be used, nor the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. God uses this woman's faith as an obedience to provide a miracle for her. So the widow puts God first over herself, over her son. That is against every instinct of a mother. Most of you would, and if you honestly, you know the story, but let's put yourself in reality. You're in a famine. You're dying. There, there, no grocery stores are open because everything's gone, whatever, wiped out. Famine is in the land. You're down to your last meal. You say, you tell that preacher, get lost. Let's just be honest. But the widow puts God first over herself and over her child. And church, there are many times like this when it doesn't make any sense to put God first. And many of us choose not to do so. And in doing so, we miss something incredible. We have missed an opportunity to draw near to God because that's what it's all about, to draw near to him. Putting God first is a spiritual principle that brings us close to God. And you say, well, I've been brought close to God through Christ. You can draw closer to him. And we should always have this desire to draw closer to God. You know, when you get saved, you're born again. That's not the end of the story. That is just the beginning of your story. That is just the beginning of your walk with God. And you're following after Jesus and drawing closer to him. Putting God first is that principle that brings us near to God. And it's really just a, an expression of faith. Faith is vitally important to our relationship with God. Faith isn't just believing something is true. Faith has to have a, have a trust factor and an obedience factor. Um, just think about this. God, God chooses faith as the vehicle, as, as the mode to put us into contact with salvation. It is that important that God chooses that. I mean, think about this. In my mind, I don't know how you think, but in my carnal mind, I think the best way to earn salvation, is the best way to receive salvation is to earn salvation. I, I messed up, therefore I should pay for my sins. And therefore I should have to take care of those sins. I could do so through my works. I'm not saying that's right, but it's just a natural human way of thinking. If you do something wrong, you should want to make it right. That's the principle. But God says that principle, that's good, but that's not going to work. Because it'll be based on you, not on me. So that's why he chooses faith. Faith. Again, and faith is not just belief because the devil believes. Faith has a believing component, but there is so much more to faith than just believing. And as we see throughout the Word of God, faith is more than just a mental comprehension. It has to be acted upon with obedience, with trust, with so many other things. But look at this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. If you come on Wednesday nights, been really concentrating on, on this area of Scripture but it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. God gives you the gift not only of grace, but of, of also faith. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So God provides us with grace through Christ, and we enjoy grace by the faith God gives us. The one that he has dealt to each one of us. And it doesn't make any sense for the widow to obey the word of the Lord through the prophet. But the widow decides to trust the Lord and puts him first. She has faith. So God, throughout his work, communicates a consistent message. He is God. We are to trust him and put him first. And if we love God and trust him, we should really have no difficulty putting him first. But we do because we have flesh. It's not natural. Our instincts are to put ourselves first. 
But that's why we walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. If we put God first, even before ourselves, it puts God in the position of responsibility. You know, have you found this throughout your life? When you're younger and you want to be responsible, then you get the responsibility and you're like, I don't want this responsibility. This is not what it's cracked up to be. You know, it's, it's amazing how there is comfort, there is peace, there are so many blessings when you don't have responsibility. I'm not saying we should all go back and lose our responsibilities, but I'm just saying you understand what I'm trying to get at. Responsibility is not what it's all cracked up to be. God wants to take responsibility because he loves us. And that's the spiritual principle behind the commandment of the first. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods besides me, before me. And God knows in that position, if he's first, then he's the priority. But if we allow him to become second, in that position, we cannot have a relationship with God. Because we will love and we will trust others or ourselves other than God. And that's not what he created us for. God created us for a meaningful relationship. God created us for the purpose of relationship. Only man is created in the likeness and the image of God. I have a pet, and I think sometimes that pet has more brains than some humans. But God, Jesus did not give his life for my dog. That dog may be smart, but it doesn't have a spirit. It has designed the spirit of God within it. And so only man has been given a spirit by which we can commune with God. And only God can be a recipient of grace through Christ. God redeems us for the purpose of relationship. And that's the purpose behind the first commandment. And if we don't get this, we'll miss it all. For example, in any marriage, any healthy marriage, hang with me when I say this, a man must put his wife first. I'm not saying that God, we put our wives over God. God is first. In our human relationships, in our marriages, our wife has to be first. In fact, in any human relationship, that is the most important one, and this sometimes goes, it's instinctive for a mother to put her children first, but that's not, and you can argue with me all you want, find me some scripture then. But you're going to find that cohesively, your responsibility is to your husband and your husband is to your wife, vice versa. It's not one way, it's both ways. And in fact, I'll tell you this, through years of, of marriage and, and counseling, whenever the children are the most important, the marriage collapses. It always collapses. It has to be built on the love of those two parents. That's another story. But anyways, the marital relationship supersedes all other relationships. And that's why God chooses it as a prime example used throughout Scripture. Read the Old Testament in the New Testament, you'll find that Israel and the church are reckoned to a bride. Why does God choose that, that relationship to be the example to you and I? And there's a reason, because it's the most important one. Now, when it comes to men giving to their spouse, let's say, and I'm, I'm just, I want you to look at it through the perspective of God. It doesn't mean that the husband gives and the wife gets and she just walks all over him. That's not the purpose. That's not the principle of the first it's because he loves her, that he gives to her, and that he gives unselfishly of himself, that he gives himself for her. And there should be then a mutual submission to one another. Again, if you have a marriage where someone is submitted and someone is giving and someone is not submitted and they're taking, that ends in divorce or a horrible marriage. That is not love. In a, in a loving marriage, there is mutual submission, equal submission. But I will put upon the husband, it is for you to do that first. 
I've heard men say, well, the Bible says submit. Well, the Bible says you love and you give. Maybe if you do a little bit of that, she will submit. And maybe you submit yourselves. It's usually pride and arrogance when you hear a man talk like that. Love for our spouse should compel us to put them first. See, when a husband and a wife practice that truth in their marriage, they give. They put each other first. Those will be the strongest marriages, and they will endure through all tests and trials. An example is, is Adam and Eve. They're the first couple, but yet they choose to sin. They choose their way over God's way, and they're choosing themselves first. When Adam and Eve sin, they're, they're choosing to really, in essence, reject God's love. And likewise, in our decision to sin, we're saying to God this, we know what's best for us. This is what we want. This is what we desire. We know you're God. You create us. You know everything, but you don't know me. You don't know what I want. You don't know what I need. Do you hear the selfishness in that? Because really, that's what we have to get down to. When we, we understand what God says, what he desires, what he wants, but we act differently. What we're saying is we know best. What we want is more important. It's the essence of selfishness. We're ignoring the perfect love of our creator who is trying to protect us, trying to care for us, trying to give us everything he can possible, and we just spit in his face and say, no thanks, I'm going to do it my way. God placed Adam and Eve in that garden for a reason. Not so he can wash them, watch them. You know, it's, it's amazing if you get a fish tank and you put those fish in it, hey, you just tap on the glass and you think, what is going on in that world? So God puts them in this world, but he doesn't tap on the glass like some, some fish. No, God, God goes and then passes out of this world that he is in into the world he creates so that he could fellowship with man in the garden. Why? Because he made them in his likeness, his image, put his spirit in them. They have life. They are the most like him. He wants to fellowship with them. He wants to have a relationship with them. Everything in that environment, everything they need, want, desire is in that environment. God set it up for them. And when they choose not to obey God, they reject all that. God is simply saying, put me first. Trust me. But man is saying, no thanks. I want to do my own thing. One, one rule, one stipulation. You can have a fellowship with me. You can enjoy anything. There's nothing that, that, that you can't have or want. Or just, it's, it's all right here. One stipulation, one tree. The fruit from that tree you cannot touch. It does not belong to you. It belongs to me. And I like to call that tree, it's not just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree of selfishness. It's the tree of me, myself, and I. It's the tree of I want what I want, I'm going to do what I want to do. And when Satan tempts Adam and Eve to eat from that tree, that's exactly what he goes at because that is who he is. He embodies selfishness. And this is the conversation, Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that in that day, and this is Satan speaking of God, trying to speak on God's behalf. For God knows in that day, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Now, isn't that what you want? You want don't you want to be like God? You'll know good from evil. And that's Satan's motivation. It's selfishness. He wants to be God. In the book of Isaiah, Satan says within himself, that's who he wants. He wants to be the most high. He wants to be worshiped and adored. And Satan sees in Adam and Eve that desire. And so he tempts them, saying, you can be first. You don't have to put God first. God is holding out from you. You can be first. Just eat the fruit. And Adam and Eve, when they eat the fruit, they're choosing to put themselves first. And that's the epitome of all sin. 
It's not for our detriment that God is putting us first. Look what, look what God was trying to shield us and protect us from. Look at the world that we live in. When good is bad and bad is good, we live in that type of world. It is just rampant. And yet, it was all caused by our own selfishness. Our, our inability or our desires not to put God first. God cannot make you have a relationship with him. He invites us. And he invites us by doing this, just put me first, trust me. Mankind, though, has a history of putting themselves first and moving away from God. Because that's exactly what happened after man fell, after they sinned. God moved them out of the garden. He couldn't have a relationship with them in that place any longer. He has to move them out of that place. And ever since then, God has tried to get us back to that place of fellowship. And our own sinful desires have caused us to be first, to make gods of ourselves, to make gods of our desires, to make gods of people, and to worship them, to serve them, and to put them first. When God isn't first, it's the ultimate act of betrayal because he created us to have relationship, and when we deny that, we put ourselves first. If a marriage, in a, if a spouse has many lovers or love for themselves over their spouse, that isn't a marriage. It's not a healthy relationship. And that's what we ought to see in our relationship with God. If we have other lovers, if someone is first, it's not a healthy relationship. God wants us to have a healthy relationship with him. And he doesn't want us to obey us to the Lord over us. That's not the, the motivation behind it. The motivation behind putting him first is love. God knows if we trust him and put him first, we can be near to him. And that's what God wants. That's why he offered Christ for us, is that we draw near to him, to put him first. As I close there, I'll ask you this question. Is Jesus first in your life? Is Jesus number one in your life? Not in word or profession, but in reality. Is Jesus first? Is Jesus first in your marriage? Is Jesus first in your desires? Is he first in every area of your life? And if not, then church, today, make that commitment. Make that adjustment and put him first.